Hello, you're listening to the Sunday Show Tunes podcast. I'm Paul. And I'm Maureen. Coming up on today's episode, we'll be chatting with West End legend Bonnie Langford and composer Howard Goodall. Bonnie Langford made her West End debut aged just seven years old and hasn't looked back since she starred on stage, television, film and radio, both in the UK and the United States. We are utterly thrilled to have the national treasure that is Bonnie Langford with us this afternoon. <laughs> How are you, my love? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. National treasure and all that. Well, it's, it's, it's completely true. It is true. It's completely yes, true. You, um, you uh, w- researching this interview, I was like, where do I begin? Your your bio. Have I mean, you not ever just stopped? Yeah. It's not just stage, it's screen, it's television, it's, oh my, Doctor Who. I mean, it is. Yeah, I mean, w- w- d- you just don't seem to stop. Um, you I have made a big your... mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the amount of West End and touring and stuff you've done, you're probably never at home. So. Um... No. Yeah, I mean, I love my home, but I've seen a lot of it this year, as we all have. And <laughs> it's been true. very strange, hasn't it? I bet. Yeah. You made yeah. your West End debut age seven been Gone with the Wind. What, did you come from a theatrical background? Well, my great aunt, sort of, my great aunt was a ballerina and um, danced with Anna Pavlova and was of the same era as Ninette de Valois and all that. But she toured the world in touring companies, ballet companies and concert party and things like that. And when she returned from her travels, she opened a dancing school, which my mother then took over when she was older. And my two sisters, when I was born, they to 10 years older than me and they were training my eldest sister was at the royal ballet school and my middle sister was at arts ed and then went to the royal ballet school so it was all about training dancing learning your yep. craft learning your trade so in that respect i was i wasn't from a, a family that particularly performed and certainly not child performers so i was the sort of one to start all that bit off but really not in any kind of planned way pretty much everything in my life has become has come through fortune and luck and opportunity and that's my well, and also, as, also talent Bonnie. And I was yeah. gonna say and just well, a little bit of talent and training you know and learning yeah. that you have to do it and you have to turn up and get on there whether you feel like it or not and and find you know I, I it was always about longevity as as I said it was always learning your craft so that you can always come up with the goods when you need to you can always perform you can always you know you'll always be reliable and uh you know and able to do what you feel is your best and that is so important in the industry isn't it Mm. yes to be able to you know like you said in nine to five that last show that you did you know (laughs) a torn meniscus honey i know what a torn meniscus is and i cannot believe that you did a show with the torn meniscus it was, I was, well, I, yeah, the last show before lockdown, I was in a really bad state. I don't know. I was, I only had about three weeks left of nine to five to do because I wasn't actually planning to do the show in the first place. I had been in the tour, touring version of it. And I was actually in 42nd Street at uh, Theatre Royal Drury Lane and was due to do another project, which didn't then come to fruition and the producers found out that I would then be available after 42nd Street and I went straight into nine to five from there um but I did actually I had a had a a dodgy knee then anyway but after having um done the show for so long 
because it was only meant to be a limited season, nine to five was only meant to be on until about August, September. And then I was due to finish, but it was such a success that they kept the show on. I stayed on with it. So by the time it got to March, I was literally, literally on my knees because my <laughs> knee then decided to give up. And I, yeah, I had an eight millimeter tear in my meniscus. So um, I could, it was hot, well, not nice, but uh, somehow, you know, I'm a bit weird. I just, oh, carry on, carry on, carry on. But I think I was coming to the end of my season and my body was deciding to go, it's okay, you can fall apart now. Uh, but in fact, it, I, I had a, a, an earlier start than I planned because of lockdown, you mm. know, we just... That when Saturday, home? which yeah. I managed to just by coincidence, I managed to see that that Saturday that's... performance. It was the last West End show I saw before the lockdown. I can't believe you did that. That's that's amazing. Um, well, yeah, that's that's a memory. So maybe my what when I see when when we all get back, it, you have to be in. Maybe that we, we could complete the circle there. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I'll be doing something else. You come and see it. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. go. Yeah, Perfect. But don't don't leave it too long, Bonnie, because I don't want to wait. No. Once it gets back, we need to be back on the stage. So I oh, so you made your West End debut in Gone with the Wind at the Theatre yeah. Royal Drury Lane, um, and then you um, <gasps> went into Gypsy with Angela Lansbury. I did. Yeah. When what I was, was eight. What's the experience? An eight-year-old Bonnie working with Angela Lansbury in Gypsy. Tell us about that. Well, I didn't. I mean, I knew I knew she was a star because she's just a star. She is. Uh, she has a, a an aura about her, a, a charisma. You know that whole one singular sensation. She walks into the room, and you know yeah. it, you did. You do. She walks in, but it's not in a kind of um, step back and wonder. It's this glorious energy and positivity and uh, and humility and empathy and all those things and fun so I knew that this was a, a lovely lovely lady and she was playing my mum it was incredibly professional environment um, as all kids do you rise to the challenge if you're not talked to as if you're stupid yeah. um, we were yeah. treated as the small adults we were included and in, incorporated and in everything and I just was a sponge I was a very quiet kid but I would come to life when I was on the stage doing what I knew was the right thing to do in the right environment. It wasn't showing off, it was portraying a part and a character. What was so bizarre for me though, was that in those days, children were only allowed to perform 40 performances a year. And so that worked out about six weeks. And so I did the end of my six week season and another little girl was taking over. The producers took my parents into the company office and asked them if they would consider me going to America with the show. Um, and uh, we didn't take it seriously. <laughs> <laughs> my parents thought, well, isn't that nice? They're just being nice. About a month later, they phoned up and said, have you discuss this have you thought about it at all and they said no because we've you know I haven't thought about it oh didn't think you meant it um anyway cut a very long story short and um me being made a ward of court I uh I went to America with the show as well and that was I mean it was it had a massive impression on me and I think that really whenever I'm asked about things that changed your life as such I think it did because it gave me it didn't change my actual life. Yes, I went to America for a year and saw things I hadn't seen because I'd only ever been as far as Bogner in my life. Um, but I, <laughs> you know, so there was a whole different world and we're talking mid seventies here. So it's very different. And it was, America was a long way away then, wasn't it? You know, we yeah. didn't have the internet and, and, and yeah. as much. It was, it was a long way away. 
you didn't have cartoons like that here. You know, no. we didn't, you had Tom and Jerry, but you know what I mean? It wasn't as, it, you know, we're a lot closer now. And you're right, we didn't have the communications, we didn't have the connections. I think my mother took a few American Express traveler's checks. She didn't have credit cards. I mean, it was another <laughs> yeah, completely a, different. We did have electric light, but you know, <laughs> it sounds like we lived in the dark ages, but it was a completely different world. But I absolutely soaked it up like a sponge. And I think it did just secure the fact that I felt so comfortable in what I was doing and wanted to continue mm. with it. And you earned yourself a, a Drama Desk nomination. I do, but I didn't find out about that until about 10 years ago. <laughs> nobody, <laughs> what? <laughs> nobody told me. <laughs> oh, oh, no. no. Oh, my know. goodness. That's, that's kind of hilarious and a little bit tragic. <laughs> well, oh, you know, my... I came back to England and I went back to school and that was it. That was it done. It was done. Wow. What a love. Well, my parents would go, well, that was a lovely thing to happen. How lovely. How nice. Can't take that away from you. <laughs> that was it. Well, it, it seems since then you seem to have worked consistently in film, um, television. Tell it, we're going to talk about musical theatre here, Sunday show tunes. It's, it's, well, we also don't have enough time. We need like yeah. several podcasts to talk about everything. <laughs> um, to talk th about your entire career. There's some roles <laughs> that you just keep coming back to. Um, you've been in Chicago six times. Have I? Yes, I counted. Oh, really? Yes. Gosh, thanks for. I didn't know that. Um, what draws <laughs> you back to to a show like Chicago, a, a role such as Roxy? Well, what I, what is so brilliant about Chicago is that it's like joining part of a of a jigsaw puzzle, a very big jigsaw puzzle. And it, I remember once when I was in the show, and uh, we were about to do a cast change, and uh, one of the actors coming in was um, very much a straight actor, hadn't been in any musicals before, couldn't understand why you have to stand on, you know, because there are numbers at the front of the stage, yeah, um, on the floor, and 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 the show is worked out very carefully, carefully and very cleverly in that way. So you know, he was blocked you know he was told to stand on like three gold and uh which meant that you'd stand on number three just and level with the gold cross arch and he was like well i i might want to be over here and i might want to do this over there and they go no please this is this is where it works and he was finding it very hard to adjust and yet then when we came to do i think it was the 10th anniversary in london and they got lots of people in uh, to do different parts of the show, little bits and bobs. Yeah. And it worked seamlessly because somebody would go off as Roxy and somebody else would come on as Roxy. You know, it was wonderful the way he worked out. And I remember during the rehearsals, we went and did some interviews and he said, the thing that's so amazing about the show is that, you know, with, with, with a, a performance like this, everyone knows that you all just stand on three gold for that bit. And then it doesn't matter. You just slot in and the whole thing's like this wonderful jigsaw puzzle. And it made me laugh because I said, <laughs> you weren't saying that in rehearsals. <laughs> but but, but it, these shows like Chicago, I have done Chicago. There was one time I did Chicago on Broadway and the lady playing um, Mama Morton, I realized, I went on, I had a 45 minute put in, I, I went on and I hadn't met her and um, I came off from Funny Honey and I thought, oh, I should go and say hello. And I literally, I came off on stage left, I went round the back where she then went into stage right wing where she was and went, hello, I'm Bonnie, I'm playing Roxy tonight, nice to meet you. Went back on and then, then we met, the next time we met was on stage going, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, why do you want to do this? And she looked at me because she knew that I'd just gone and said hello to her in this very British accent. And the next minute I'm going, what do you mean? I don't want to do this. You know, and she was like, oh, my, it was a big That's girl. brilliant. It was like, 
who is this mad woman looking at me? <laughs> that's how it works because you just you know I got a phone call one time from them saying I think it was on a Friday saying could you come do could you come do the show Monday yeah all right <laughs> and I came once I came to do it in London I'd been doing it on Broadway and then they said would you go to London for Christmas and I went yes thank you very much so I came over but they said the only thing is we can't we won't be able to ship your costume in time could you take it on a carry-on so they gave me a little carry-on case with my shoes in it and my costume <laughs> and I literally I mean I came to the stage door with like you know I felt like I was Peggy Sawyer in 40s anything I got my costume I got my tattoos oh you. My you know the only thing I didn't have were my silver buckles but you know it was hilarious and I just went on and went yeah yeah this is my version and this is what I do here thank you very much goodbye it's it's I the love most it. hilarious let's, show let's talk about 42nd street for a, a minute because you have been in 42nd street twice there was a little bit of a gap to begin yeah, with you were, <laughs> what was it like being back in 42nd street at, at drury lane just glorious just glorious i mean i played peggy sawyer in a tour um, I think it was about 25 years ago, sometime in the 90s, I don't know. And um, I, yeah, so I played Peggy and then they asked me to come back and play Dorothy. And I had seen this most recent production on the opening night, believe it or mm. not. I was doing EastEnders at the time and I got the night off and I went, I'm going! And I went to see it and it was just thrilling because they were very, very clever. Randy Skinner, the choreographer, he said, right, I'm going to, if we're going to do this production, we need to do uh, more because he said that he went to see Maine when he was a young man and that made him want to go into the business. This was from Broadway. He went back to see it at Maine in 1996 and they had put on exactly the same production, a complete copy. And he said he found it disappointing because mm. his, everyone's uh, expectations had grown. Yeah. And what we thought was spectacular mm -hmm. years ago is not anymore, unfortunately. We're all slightly numb and greedy. So he said he would only put the show on if he could use the iconic moments and then add to them. And boy, did he add to them. Oh, I mean, you know, what a production. Uh, uh, what a production. Wasn't it? And now, and it, and fortunately, I'm so thrilled and felt so privileged, not only to be in it, but we filmed it. And yeah. I thought they did a great, great job on it. And they're going to release it on DVD in the summer. So I see from Twitter. But anyway. <laughs> that That's where you find all the news on Twitter. That's right. That's where you find out everything, me, but, Bonnie. Yes. So, but you know, especially now, in the in the in the, the situation that we're in, not only were we able to see it, it was on YouTube, I think, for a weekend at one point. Then it was on Broadway HD, and now to be released, isn't that fantastic? I mean, how long will it be before we get the possibility? to have 59 people on a stage mm. exactly. it might be some time it might be some time and there it is plus the fact that mark bramble passed um a, nearly two years ago now and it's there it's he was the director and co-writer and so it's sort of his legacy that it was yeah. there the way he wanted it to be so i feel very privileged that it's part of my history and for you as a performer there you were all those years later in the same theater you made your west end mm. debut Mm -hmm. I, I must tell you, I, I had a moment when it was my dress run. I had to do a dress run in the afternoon. I was doing a show in the evening and I stood there on my own on that big stage. I made my entrance 
the same place that I made my entrance when I was seven years old in Gone with the Wind on that oh. very same theatre. And I stood there in the middle of that, that huge, glorious stage with that incredible band and auditorium. And I had a little wobble and my, my life flashed before my eyes. And, wow. uh, and I had a moment, you know, it's a very humbling and emotional mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. to do, to stand there on your own and feel that you're at home. And for a performer such as yourself, you were in EastEnders for three years, but even mm. during those three years, you didn't give up live performances. You still did bits and pieces here and there where you could. Mm. The lockdown must have hit you really hard. Well, at first, I cleared out all my cupboards like you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, go, you know, I did that thing. Every, at first, I was very scared, as we were all were. Yes. Very, very scared. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, I can't live my life being scared. I'm very much that type of a person. I could, like everybody else, go there, but I have to go, don't go there, don't go there. Be aware of it, be be careful, be cautious, write all the emergency numbers on the door so that you know, you know, on the notice yep. board so that yep. my daughter could know if this happens to me, you do that. Um, Chella, where everything, I was very organized in that respect. And then I went, well, now we're going to live. And, um, uh, cleared out all the cupboards and thought oh this is rather lovely I've never been at home so much and also everyone else is in the same boat um, yeah. no airplanes silence peace calm tranquility mm-hmm. this is a bit of a novelty and then the novelty wears off very quickly because yes. it, and I think that the longevity of all this has been you know not only seeing the the trauma that it's caused to those who've had it who haven't but it's the fact that so many of our industry are unable to do anything. We don't yep. get any help. Mm-hmm. Um, that's devastating and scary and worrying. And also we haven't got that usual outlet to cheer everybody up or to make mm. people right. feel or to right. take them away from the drama. You know, even in world wars, there would be entertainment because- There was, there was he, live entertainment. Yeah. And, and live makes a difference. Yes. And as much as it's brilliant and thank goodness for Netflix and television and all those things, um, it's still not getting away from your surroundings. No. Yeah. It's not the same being sat on your sofa with a cup of tea. You know, if you've no. not paid too much money for a glass of wine and some crisps, you've, you've not been out really, have you? <laughs> but that said even during the lockdown you have still well we just recorded um, a performance for the theater cafe theater channel tell us a little bit about that oh it's a it was just a bit of fun they so uh, before christmas i got this mad phone call from my friend billy dima bill dima who's a wonderful choreographer who i've known for hundreds of years and he said bon bon would you come and do a bit on the theatre channel and and do these lines to camera and um I just I was out at the time actually and I got home and I went oh okay so when do when when do you want these by he went oh tonight (laughs) so there was me (laughs) frantically running around anyway they then said to me I'll come and do a number so I said all right I'll come and do a number properly then we went into lockdown then it got more and more complicated so anyway I ended up doing this number and um they said do it in the theatre cafe and I thought well how can we celebrate theatre and the, the surroundings that we're in with all these posters and glorious things, most of which are of my nieces. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a really nice moment, isn't there, where nieces. you acknowledge Mary Poppins and then there's yes. lots of, you're looking lovingly at some shows you've been in. 
you know, I just went, well, we just got to celebrate this. And I just wanted to be, I get a kick out of theatre. And mm. then, you know, I'm so sort of known for my legs kicking in the air. In fact, there used to be this hysterical rumour that I'd had my hamstrings cut when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody asked me if it was true. What? Anyway. If you read it on the internet, it must be true. It must be true. <laughs> Therefore, it is true. So I just thought I'd take the mickey out of myself, really, and just have a laugh. We, we need that. some fun. We need oh, just, we do. It's, it's so tongue-in-cheek and just... Yeah. A lovely, beautiful red sequined outfit. You know what's what's <laughs> not know. to love about that. And I quite like the moment that you're you're singing wistfully with the coffee cups by your face. That's a nice <laughs> yeah, moment. Yeah, yes, yes. But well, I love my. You see, I love my cappuccinos. So I was wistfully wishing that it was switched on, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't even cappuccino in the place. Um, yes, and I did find it funny that they they found a table with my face on it, and I looked at my fat beautiful face. <laughs> 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 Bonnie oh, Langford, laugh, we could spend honestly we could spend all afternoon chatting with you um please mm. come back before too long oh, so we can chat some are, more because you are um, such a joy there's oh, so much to talk you, about Maureen. and thank you. Uh, stay safe lovely and thank you so much indeed and to you as well and we will get back there and thank you for keeping everybody going with all these great show tunes and soon we'll be able to hear them live <laughs> career spanning over 30 years, Howard Goodall is without doubt one of the UK's most distinguished and versatile composers. Howard has won an Ivan Fellow, Brit, Emmy and BAFTA award and he's with us now. Hi Howard, how are you? Hello, very good, thank you. Well, as good as can be in these weird times. Absolutely. Yes, very true. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. It's, it's, it's long, long overdue that we've had you on the show. Tell us, um, you have a vast output of work. What was your first musical theatre influence? And I'm asking that because when I listen to your musical theatre scores, they don't really sound like traditional, I'm going to use air quotes on the air, musicals. <laughs> they film, they sound to me a lot more film score. Oh. What, what are your musical influences? Well, first of all, I think the reason why I've got such a vast um, repertoire is because I'm so very old and I've been doing it for <laughs> Uh, everybody else will catch up in good time. Um, so here's where it started with me was when I was a sixth former at school, uh, 16 years old, the, the one of the teachers said to me, why don't you write a musical with, you know, the guy who's going to write the words, one of the other teachers, um, and that the 11 year olds, which were a lot of them, it was a very large comprehensive school, so there were a lot of them, all 120 of them, will be in this musical you're going to write. And I said, well, I've never written a musical. I said, well, now you can start. <laughs> um, and we did one then, and we did another one a year later before I left the school. Um, the first one was, was The Midnight Folk, and then actually we did three. The Midnight Folk, based on the John Macefield book, and then yep. we, uh, with a cast yep. of 120, thank you very much. And then we did... Um, <laughs> Uh, then we did The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And then we did The Last Battle, which is the last in the Narnia, yes. uh, which is was kind of my uh, Goethe Demerung style uh, piece. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Goethe Demerung is the last part of Wagner's ring when the, when the gods palace in the sky collapses finally it's the twilight of the gods and the last battle is kind of c.s lewis's version of that it's about the end of the world yeah. really apocalypse that's right uh, and believe it or not yes we turned it into a musical it's and, not your uh, most obvious choice for sure 
I was by then. I just left. By the time the show was actually on, the last one, I was by now a student in nearby Oxford because I grew up near Oxford. And um, the, the what will surprise people to know is that the percussion player in the band I got together of students to come and do the show for these eleven-year-olds was uh, Rowan Atkinson, although he wasn't famous at the time. <laughs> uh, anyway, but... I love it. <laughs> just drop that name. I'll just drop that in there now. Just but, drop that um, in there. Um, just to sort of put this in context, not only I'd never written a musical, but, you know, the musicals I knew um, at that age, 15, 16, when I started this journey, um, would probably be limited to The Sound of Music, yeah. um, you know, West Side Story, basically anything that had been a film that had been on TV, I yeah. suppose, what I would have known at that point. And it must be hard for people who are now 16 to think, um, how could there have been a world where there were so few pieces out there for you to model your work on. Mm. Now, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and you can get them from all over the world as well, not just your own backyard, as it were. And uh, so I didn't really know what a musical was, other than the fact that I loved The Sound of Music, partly because it had an organ in it, uh, one of the few musicals ever to have a pipe organ in it, uh, because I was at that age mad about organs and uh, playing the organ and making my family go into every church we ever passed on holiday to look at the organ. To go look the at church. the pipe organ. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly right. And so the sound of music ticked all the boxes for me because my other great interest in life, which is probably evident from some of the subjects of the musicals I've done, is history. And uh, so there's a historical element to sound of music and then there's an organ in the wedding scene. Uh, so that was I had those kind of things in my mind. I don't think at the point I wrote my first piece, age 15, I don't think I'd actually maybe even seen like a West End musical in, in person. I think the first one I ever saw was Jesus Christ Superstar, which would have been in uh, 19, oh, 1974, something like that. It had been running a few years by the time I saw it. Maybe I had seen that one piece, but maybe I just didn't really have that kind of background. Now, of course, since then, in the 150 years since that time, I've, <laughs> I've got to know and hear lots of musicals. But when I started out, I, basically what I had was this idea was that what a musical had to be, and these musicals we did of the C.S. Lewis books were quite long. For a musical, a school musical, I think, you know, we were hitting the three-hour mark. And Ooh. So it had about, oh! had about 30 songs in it. And wow. um, I, my idea was that all of the songs had to be a slightly different style or else your audience's ears would get bored. Uh, and unlike, you know, a pop album, uh, which I knew quite a bit about at that time, the albums that I liked, where it was basically one style for 45 minutes, uh, and you buy the album of the people you like because they make that same style. Oh. And very few bands, the Beatles is probably the best example, uh, maybe Prince is another, uh, very few bands make different types of songs and different types of styles on their own albums. Mostly they do the same thing all the time very well. Uh, but they do do the same style. And I thought, well, obviously, if this is going to be a long piece with lots of songs, they've all got to be of a slightly different style. So it was a kind of a crash test, um, you know, crash course in writing in every different style I could think of. Oh, we'll do one now in a style of an old sort of Hollywood dance number. Now there'll be one that sounds like a Paul McCartney song. Now there'll be one that sounds okay. like a Now, And I think that when people say to me, how do you learn to compose? The best way to learn to compose is to copy the stuff you like. Yeah, and that's basically the way. And also, it very rarely does sound like the thing you like because there's too much of you in there. Um, uh, I want to quote my favourite couplet from Sondheim at this point, which is, and which I, by the way, wish I'd known at the time, which is, "Stop worrying 
that your vision is new. Let others make that decision they usually yeah. do. Mm -hmm. And it's an incredibly profound thought, this, because we're endlessly trying to sound different. In fact, the best thing to do is just be you, and it probably will sound different because you are different from everybody else in the world. So anyway, I wrote these pieces with lots of different styles in them. The one was like a Bach fugue, and there was another one. I mean, it, it's just everything I could think. What different thing can I copy now? Or pastiche. And so that was my sort of baptism of fire. But those were, as it were, juvenile attempts at the form. And then time went by, and I, after you know, got the university got involved in comedy and comedy review, and that led to TV and TV comedy and doing TV themes and things like that. So when the 1980s came along, um, my then agent, uh, Richard Armitage, who was the son of Noel Gay, who wrote Me and My Girl, mm -hmm. said to me, you know, you're doing all this TV work, but are you going to write a musical? And I said, well, I don't know where I would fit in, because at that time, the sorts of shows that were coming to the Western were things like On Your Toes and 42nd Street, and then there were yeah. the Lloyd Webber. Um, you know, blockbusters. And Andrew's shows were a thing of their own. And I, one of the things I like to challenge is this idea of game changers. People talk about Hamilton as a game changer, as if everybody's going to change their game to be like Hamilton. And generally what happens with shows in this category is not that they change the game, but they change the game for themselves. And it's because they're not like anything from before. They don't tend to, they're not followed by lots of copycats. They're actually, they can't be followed because they are so unusual and so They're so unique, unique. yeah. Uh, and it makes, it makes it sound as if we're all going to now write Hamilton, which would be a terrible mistake because Hamilton yeah. is incredibly original and special in its own sense. Yeah. And even Lin-Manuel probably won't write another piece like Hamilton. Uh, so uh, what I suppose I felt about Andrew's shows, things like Evita and Superstar and Cats that were around at that time, I, I thought... He writes that. I can't write that. It's not what's natural to me. And there are lots of musical styles that I really like and feel close to, you know, folky sounds, pop sounds, classical um, polyphony, <laughs> where you <laughs> layer on one voice after another, one after another, into a huge construct. Counterpoint, it's, it's sometimes called. Well, those things really attracted me, and I was interested in that. I was trained in that as well as a university student in music. So I wanted to do all these things, which didn't really seem to be part of the musical as a form at that point, there was the kind of Broadway version of the musical, which I was far as, as a boy brought up in a choir school in a small village in Oxfordshire, not really Broadway material. <laughs> that will, that will account was, for the lack of an 11 o'clock number in any of your shows. <laughs> a very different 11 o'clock, yeah, maths. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I suppose I didn't really feel where I fitted in into that whole landscape. But Richard said to me, go on, write a piece. And I said, well, what I'd really like to do, I know this sounds stupid, because at this point I was going through a slightly, um, my girlfriend was worked at Hampstead Theatre, and I was going through a mad theatre phase where when I'd first moved to London after university, and I loved the theatre and went to see play after play after play after play. Not many musicals, but mostly lots of plays. And I saw these plays like Brian Friel's Translations at, at Hampstead Theatre with these, these casts of people who are now legends who were earlier in their careers at the time. And I just thought, this is wonderful. Couldn't you write a musical that felt a bit more like one of these plays? It just happened to have singing in it. And that was kind of the, the task I set my, the ludicrous task I set myself. Um, and uh, this was, remember this is before Les Mis, where having people in musicals wearing brown clothes, downtrodden, you know, people, poor people fighting for their rights. I mean, it was not really what musicals were meant to be about. It meant more, they had a much more sort of good time feel to them in those days. And uh, so anyway, I, I went away and I, I thought, well, I don't want to do a 19th century novel because that seems to be what everybody else does. I want to do something a bit, you know, that might be a bit historical, but it's not kind of route one. 
uh, you know, wouldn't go to Dickens or something like that. I have done Dickens since, but at the time I didn't think, oh, I don't want Dickens or Hardy or anything like that. I wonder what their alternatives would be. And I, and I stumbled across a book, a book by Melvin Bragg, which had a kind of D.H. Lawrence feel to it, but it was slightly more modern than that. And it was it was about a farming community in Cumbria. Now, I, I went to see Melvin. My agent set up a meeting. And at that point, he was incredibly famous TV uh, direct, um, presenter on the South Bank show. And I was completely nobody in my early 20s, probably about 20 when I first met him. In fact, he said to me when I first met him, he said, I went to university before you were even born. Uh, <laughs> uh, so um, I said to him, look, I, I had this idea of a kind of rustic musical that would be like a play, but it would be set up, you know, in a country area. Uh, and there'd be all sorts of other styles of music that you'd expect in a musical, probably no dancing, certainly no... No um, dancing. <laughs> not, no, certainly no grass skirts, or at least not that type. Anyway, so... Um, I said to him, this is the kind of idea I've got. And he's, he's since said to me, and he's more or less said more diplomatically at the time, you are completely mad. This will never work. He said, but there's a book of mine you could read uh, called The High of Man. And he said, that's kind of a 25-year history of that period of Britain, about this family, and they go through all sorts of things. There's lots of event and action in it, which might help you, know, you create a shape. He said, well, anyway, read it and see what you think. So yeah, I read it. And... I thought, well, this kind of almost is what I'm after. I didn't know really what I was after, but it felt a bit like what I was after because these people were ordinary people in, extra in very difficult circumstances who had um, incredibly deep feelings, but they didn't say, deep, didn't say complicated things. And I thought the music could be the depth of their feelings and the yeah. emotions they had uh, without them having to say, you know, Noel Coward-style lines. Um, so uh, I said, well, what I'll do, he said, why don't you write a couple of songs and we'll see where we go from there. He was hedging his bets because I think he thought I was mad and that it wouldn't come to anything. <laughs> so anyway, I went away and wrote um, three, four songs, No Choir of Angels, which is a song at the end of the piece. Um, I wrote the first song, the song of the hired men, and I wrote... Um, uh, the part of the union song, and I, th I think one other, I think, can't remember which it was now. Uh, and I wrote them, and a few weeks later went to meet Melvin. And by now, we were both at the Edinburgh Festival. I was doing the Rowan Atkinson show in review, uh, and he was doing the TV festival and was staying in a very posh hotel. So he said, Come to my posh hotel and, um, you know, play me these songs. I was incredibly nervous. I remember I was like 22 at this point. And um, so we went into the ballroom of the George V Hotel or whatever it was called in Edinburgh, Newtown. And uh, in this dusty old forgotten ballroom, there was a massive grand piano that probably hadn't been tuned since the story of the hired man actually took place. And uh, he said, well, why don't you sit down and play it? And I sat down and played these songs and sang them loudly and aggressively at the piano and bashed away. <laughs> loudly and aggressively. <laughs> I like uh, the aggressive part. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely aggressive. That piano was, would, would have been very relieved when I finally got up from it. And uh, he, I sang them all three once, and there was a sort of long silence. He said, can you do them all again? So I did them all over again, equally loudly. And um, at the end of it, he said, okay, well, let's, let's see if we can put this together, because he'd obviously felt there was something in these mad, loud songs. And um, that's how that started. And then we went, eventually got to do it at uh, Southampton Nuffield Theatre, and... Leicester Haymarket Theatre. I'm just naming theatres that once used to exist and don't anymore. It's an absolutely tragic um, moment to be talking about this when you think of these theatres now closing all around us. Anyway, um, I'm sorry about my phone ringing. 
<laughs> it's okay. Someone's picked it up. It's all good. That was the Southampton Nuffield saying, we, we want a new show. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so we got to do it and we got to Leicester Haymarket and eventually Andrew Lloyd himself took it as producer into the West End and I had my first West End musical not really knowing what I was dealing with. Uh, aged whatever I was, 24, 25, is extraordinary privilege to have been in that situation for that to have happened. Um, and so I started early, and I think that the the, my, the route that I always took was, um, I'm not trying to copy, any, I'm not trying to sort of, uh, there's no, I'm not trying to be a particular genre of musical. I'm just trying to write the stories I do, mm. which were often historical, sometimes not, but often deal with, with ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances, which is something I always like doing. And but that's, a fa that's fascinating, though, I think, as, as a theatre goer. Um, you don't always, I mean, I do love a cheesy show tune. I do love 11 o'clock number. I'm not going to lie, Howard. Um, but also <laughs> I do like a good story well told. And that's what your musicals do. They have a very unique sound to them. Um, they, don't, they don't sound like a, a, a musical per se. Um, and I really enjoy that when you listen to like Bendit, like Beckham, such an, a unique subject matter I, when i saw bend it like beckham in the west end there were people in the audience that had probably never ever seen a musical the subject matter drew them in and then they were experiencing something completely unique which i just think mm -hmm. is fascinating um, I, think, I, want... I think actually our audience for bend it like beckham uh, not only had they not seen a musical before i think many of our audience probably a very high percentage by normal standards had never been in a theater before no yeah um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I want to, we're running out of time, Sally. I want to ask um, if you've got a bucket list project. And I know some of our listeners who knew that you wrote the theme to Red Dwarf amongst other TV series will, will <laughs> want me to ask, is the Red Dwarf musical going to happen? Is that on your bucket list? Or what's the musical that you want to write next? Well, uh, it won't surprise you, Paul, to hear that I've already got two new musicals waiting to go on. But like everybody else in our field, there's no You're waiting. Uh, so I've got new musicals, and I think it's a truth, um, a universal truth to be a composer lyricist, is that you always like the thing best that you've just most recently written. Yeah. Uh, and I'm yes. obviously very keen to do these new pieces. And uh, they're all sort of ready to go. We had workshop them and they're ready to go. And now that we're stuck in a sightings for God knows how long. And, I, yeah. and there's nothing unique about it. Everybody's feeling this at the moment, that we're just stuck. And the, the whole sort of new platforming of new workers, whoever it's by, young people or old people or whatever, uh, is sort of like stuck because uh, we can't move through. And the fact is that um, my view about being a professional composer is you just write all the time. And so um, whether, you know, whatever happens, I'll just go on writing pieces. And if you do a piece, which I have done many times in my life, you do a musical and you have all, obviously you start out with enormous high hopes, it's going to be Oravita or it's going to be Hamilton or whatever it is. And, and then the reality of it comes and it might be wonderful, but in, in its own way, and you might be, it might have a wonderful run in a small theater and that would be great, or it might go to West End, that would be great. It might go around the world, that would be great. All these things do happen. It's just that I've stopped thinking you've got to somehow hit some Everest and then everything will sort itself out. The job is to write the new pieces. And so I, right. I do think that I, I, I just move on to the next piece and write another one. And the loveliest thing about writing musicals is that they get done again by other people and they mm -hmm. do all the work. 
and you could just turn up and hear a revival of your piece. And, uh, you know, people, you know, put their own, that people do put their own slant on pieces. And it's lovely, you know, in the olden days, composers all, all died young and never got to hear this. Whereas mm. it's great now, you can go and hear other people interpret the work, yeah. put a new slant on it. I mean, The Hard Man is whatever it is, 35, 40 years old now. And when people do it, it feels more modern because they are younger and they're yeah. doing it their way. Yeah. Yeah. So very quickly, just before we go, um, the Red Dwarf musical, can we look forward to that? Is that one of those two new pieces you've written? It's not one of those two, but I have been discussing with Doug Nader on many occasions uh, this the, the idea of doing a Red Dwarf musical. Uh, it hasn't happened yet. It may do one day, but it may be just one of those things that always is nearly about to happen and then never does. Oh, Howard, try and make that happen for, for, for so many Red yes, Dwarf please. fans around the world. Howard okay. Goodall, we're ah. out of time, but thank you so much for taking time to chat with us this afternoon. Very good to speak to you. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Next time, we're chatting with another legend, Francis Raphael, the original Eponine in Les Miserables. If you've enjoyed listening, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. I'm Paul. And I'm Maureen. And you've been listening to the Sunday Show Tunes podcast. Bye. Bye.